The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Councilmember Fred Durhall III. Um, Member Durhall did indicate that he will be a bit tardy today. Clerk will so note. Councilmember Letitia Johnson. Present. We have a quorum present, Mr. Chair. Thank you, ma'am. We have a quorum, which means we're now in session. Uh, Member Johnson, uh, did you have an opportunity to review the minutes? If so, is there a motion? Motion. There's a motion to approve the minutes. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Just want to let everyone know we have one, two, three, four, uh, three public hearings today. And we're going to have the first one that starts at 10 05. So let's go into uh, public comment. We'll get an opportunity to knock out public comment now. Is there anyone from the public who would like to speak? Please raise your hand. Is there anyone from the public who would like to speak either in person or on Zoom? Please raise your hand now. Going once, going twice, going three times. Collection of public comments have closed. Jack, how many callers do we have online, sir? Good morning, Mr. Chair. We have three callers online via Zoom. All right, three callers online via Zoom. Uh, the collection of public comments have now closed. And our first uh, commenter who's here today, we want to give everyone two minutes. We'll wait till the clock is up. And we're also going to be joined by some very special guests a little bit later today. I'll let them introduce themselves as they get when they get here around 11 o'clock or so but uh definitely anticipating their appearance all right and if we go, before we go any further I'd like to call the 1005 public hearing and recess it to the call of the chair we now have our first uh public speaker good morning <coughs> sir please introduce yourself for the record and you have two minutes uh for the record my name is reuben james crowley jr and i appear before this committee today to talk about several issues one of them being the murder of kanisha coleman uh that's a matter councilman tate you were supposed to be looking into i haven't heard anything in regards to that nor has the mother of the victim um she did not shoot herself it's physically impossible for her to have done so I've stated that on numerous occasions. You looked into the matter yourself, so she should be well aware. There were no gun burns on the wound. Um, I don't know how a homicide division for the police department in a major urban area, seasoned detectives could come up with the conclusion of a suicide or label it a suicide knowing full well that there was no uh, murder weapon found on the scene, uh, no gun burns on the body, and um, the victim's own statement, her dying words were that she was assaulted and that uh, she heard a gunshot and realized she had been shot, clearly indicating that um, she did not cause herself to be shot. Uh, the doctor's statements that she was in there fighting for her life and nobody fights for their life um, in that type of situation. Um, and the way she was fighting Sorry. indicated that she... You got the wrong phone, man. It's in the one in the back. Well, I need you to get it because it's interrupting the meeting. Well, I'm in the middle of my public comments, so uh, can you pause for a second? Same message every morning. Turn your cell phone to silence, though. Hey, it's running late this morning, man. Get, didn't get a chance to put it on Saturday. But, uh, back to what I was saying. Now, um, Kanisha Coleman, 
the matter um, needs to be addressed, and um, this probably is not the body for it. It's also the matter of uh, Robert Carmack. And then um, five arrests in 15 months that I've been subjected to by the uh, police department. So there's a lot of issues going around. But financing and the planning um, going on in the city of Detroit should be, you know, something that's really a deep dive into and um, look where all the money is going and the tax abatements, tax incentives, and seeing who is profiting from these uh, generous allotments, Thank you, allocations. Sir. Thank you. Uh, so, Mr. Crowley, you know that you and I, when we did speak about Ms. Uh, Coleman's situation, uh, you mentioned to me that you had a conversation with then Assistant Chief Bettison. I'm just reiterating what we talked about before, what I mentioned at this table. Uh, you indicated that uh, then Assistant Chief Bettison was going to do an investigation. You said that man looked you, this is your word, that man looked me in the eyes and said he would have his role if he didn't do, if, if he found out that there was anything done that was not supposed to be done with that investigation. You said you believed him. I said, well, I'm going to follow Assistant Chief Bettison's lead because he's the Assistant Chief in the department. He has the uh, the opportunity to interview and talk to his officers. I said, I'm going to follow his lead. Assistant Chief Bettison came back and he talked to you and told you what he found. I followed his lead. I have nothing more that I can do in particular in that particular case. And so I, I, I appreciate you coming down, but that is an internal situation. It has already been evaluated by the then Assistant Chief. Uh, I'm not sure what you're still looking for from me in this situation. I've communicated that to you. I appreciate the fact that you've come down, but uh, on that case, I, I have nothing else that I can do uh, on that particular one. So again, thank you for coming down um, and making your public comment. Thank you. Who's our next caller, sir? Mr. Chair, the first caller we have is Mr. Michael Lamont Cunningham, Jr. All right, Mr. Cunningham, thank you for joining us. You have two minutes. The floor is yours. Greetings, Council Chair. I'm Pro Tem, Vice President, um, the Honorable Councilwoman Letitia Johnson, Letitia Johnson, um, and everyone in the sound of my voice. Everyone in the sound of my voice, please contact the hotline number 313-444-9114. Listen to the three minutes. It is anonymous, 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 313-444-9114. Um, if you want a free ride or know someone wants a free ride to the polls, the clerk's office, been doing this for many, many years. I'm giving out free rides to the clerk's office um, to vote absentee early. Um, the name on Facebook is Forced Subservience Cunningham. Again, Forced Subservience Cunningham. The powers that we have mutated it kind, nice, and all that kind of stuff. And really what they're looking for is subservience, which will never be. It's slavish. Um, I also want to thank Council Pro Tem, uh, Vice President, you know, how he runs his meetings, makes it simple, asks people to reply back to uh, the person doing public comment, um, slow things down, do, does two minutes before um, the meeting. Um, you can tell he's the longest running council person, you know, it's like trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. And I appreciate how he runs the, runs the show. Uh, he even stopped for Mr. Crowley, you know, again. And and I appreciate him for that. Um, so 
Uh, my condolences to Councilwoman Callaway. Um, I need your prayers and actually I need an attorney. Uh, my mother was hurt at Lakeside Manor Nursing Home two years ago and almost died of malpractice. So if you know anyone, please send help. That's anyone under the sound of my voice. Uh, I'm praying for some assistance. 313-444-911. Thank you so much, Mr. Cunningham. Forward to you calling back, and we'll see what we can do to assist you. Next caller, please. Next caller is caller ending in five three four. Caller ending in five three four. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and also, with the clerk, please note that we've been joined by uh, Member Vice Chair Durhall. Good morning, sir. Clerk will so note, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Caller ending in five three four. The floor is yours. You have two minutes. Uh, yes. Good morning. Um, so. <clears throat> I would like to know why this body is not making sure that there are planning studies in neighborhoods before developers get hooked up with property. And I'd like to know why you're not insuring that. And then if you're not going to insure that, then how could this city possibly be about equity and inclusion, as Mary Sheffield stated it was at the beginning of the state of the city this year? So, how is siding with CDCs that secretly plan developments and don't include the neighbors who live right there, even though they claim to be about community engagement, how is that equitable development when the block club there didn't want it? But see, Mary Sheffield's staff person was at our block club meeting for North End Landing, which I call North End Loathing. And I asked her if she reported back to Mary Sheffield that we voted no. And she said, oh, Joanne, that was a long time ago. I said, but this is pretty controversial. Now, oh, I can't remember. How am I supposed to take that seriously? And then from the documents that I've seen, it was a very false representation of the situation presented to the city council. So how is it that you're doing uh, uh, development equitably if you're not including the residents? And how can anybody believe that, that the Dems here are really about democracy if you vote on all these secretively planned studies? Also, when it comes to the land bank, the land bank uh, former counsel and probably the executive director lied to Mary Sheffield about a very bad side lot situation. They refused to explain the situation to me. And the reason, and they think, oh, we already told you, Joanne, I didn't understand the first time. And then the reason they won't explain it, because they know they were wrong. And Mary Sheffield so far hasn't had the courtesy or decency to respond to Thank you so much. Just want to advise the callers, please keep your eye on the clock. We have to give everyone the same amount of time, and that is two minutes for general public comment today. Our next caller, please. The final caller is caller ending in 711, noting one hand, Ms. Carol Hughes was raised after public comment was closed. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, caller ending in 711, please unmute yourself. You can do so by uh, dialing star six. The floor is yours. You have two minutes. Let's wait till the clock. Good morning. Hold on one second. Good morning. Hold on one second. Let's, good morning. Let's, hold, on, hold on one second. Let's let the clock reset. There you go. All right. Caller ending in 711. The floor is yours. My name is Malik Shelton. Malik Shelton, good morning, Councilman Tate, Councilwoman Letitia Johnson. Um, I spoke on this before. Uh, the Revenue Bond Act 94 of 1933 in Section 1 of excuse me, in section 141, 
116 mandates that money received from the sale of bonds shall be used solely for the payment of the costs of the project. There have been um, numerous instances. I'll just I'll just mention the last one, the so-called uh, proposal in bond or neighborhood improvement bond. There have been over five million dollars used as of October on payroll for the uh, demolition department. Uh, I believe that this is unlawful. Now, you suggested, uh, Councilman Tate, that I go to take my complaint to the Inspector General's office, which I did over a month ago. I have not heard anything back from the Inspector General's office. The law department as well, I've, I've uh, issued four-year requests. The law department is very slipshod in uh, responding to four-year requests. I've had several uh, four requests issued to them, and I never got back any reply whatsoever. And others, the reply I got back was they used laws that don't even uh, re- apply to what I was requesting to deny my four-year request. So again, this is a very, very uh, serious issue that uh, needs to be looked into, as well as the limited tax. All right, thank you so much. And- that takes us to the end of our general public comment. All right, colleagues, it also takes us to uh, the point where I have to uh, call the 10-15 public hearing and recess it to the call of the chair. We are now back at the 10:05 public hearing with the parties who are participating. Please queue up. The 10:05 public hearing is to establish an obsolete property rehabilitation district on behalf of Livernois 186. 13 LLC in the area of 18601 through 18613 Livernois, Detroit, Michigan, in accordance with Public Act 146 of 2000. Will the parties who are participating, when you see yourselves on the screen, please introduce yourselves for the record. Good morning, Veronica Farley, Housing and Revitalization Department. Good morning. Casey Jackson, Detroit Economic Growth Corporation. Morning. Don't be shy. Uh, this is Damian Ellis. I'm a part of the development team. Morning. Morning. And to the chair, it looks like we're missing um, Brandon Greer, who is um, leading out the development. Did he, he needs to raise his hand or let us know where he is, give us a phone number or something. Um, I will have him raise his hand. He's been trying to get in. He said he raised his hand. Yeah, we're looking at it right now. We don't see any hands raised. Yeah, just to to you all, if if you provide us with uh, phone numbers to those individuals who are participating, that would be very, very helpful uh, for the team who's looking to uh, pull everyone over. Always helps. Well, we'll give him an opportunity to speak once he arrives. Uh, still, again, if you can raise your hand, uh, that would be helpful. Maybe you shut your uh, system down and, and power it back mm-hmm. up. That may help. Um, and do we have uh, Mr. Hader, you're presenting in this one as well, sir? Uh, 
chair, no one's on. All right, who would like to begin? Uh, to the chair, Livernoy 18613 LLC is requesting an obsolete property rehabilitation district in the area of 18613 Livernoy in the Avenue of Fashion area of the city of Detroit. This proposed project will rehabilitate a one-story vacant retail building with roughly 2,760 square feet of building area into a high-end restaurant. The renovations will include window replacement, new facade, all new mechanical systems, including plumbing, HVAC, and electrical. The legislative body of a qualified local governmental unit may establish a district on its own initiative or upon written request of the owners of said property. The establishment of an obsolete property rehabilitation exemption district is only the first of two local approvals required for an applicant to receive any tax benefit. In order to receive the tax benefit, this applicant will need to appear before this honorable body again. The petitioner and the D Detroit Economic Growth Corporation are present to answer any additional questions. Thank you. Who would like to proceed? To the chair, may I share my screen? Yes, ma'am. Okay, um, sorry. Okay, 18613 Livernoy, um, it's being led. We, we don't yes. See your, we don't see your screen just yet, just FYI. Oh, you don't? No, ma'am. Okay. Uh, uh, there we go. We see it. Now. You see the presentation? Yes, ma'am, we see it now. Okay, thank you. Um, 18613 Livernoy is being led by Brandon Greer, Damian Ellis, and um, Epic Udo. Um, they're here today and they're asking for the establishment of an obsolete property rehabilitation district. Um, Damien and Brandon um, are Detroit residents, graduates of the Community Development Financial Institution Capital Impacts, um, excuse me, Equitable Development Initiative Program. And um, they actually have a couple more projects that will be coming here requesting incentives as well. So before we get started, I just want to go over what a, this OPRA is, how it's gonna impact this project and um, overall. So on this slide, you'll see um, three different color bars, uh, where we are today right now, what the developer pays on property tax for this building is roughly $1,300 a year. And so when the developer goes in, they renovate the property and fix it up, the assessor is going to go out, reassess the property based on that investment they made, and the taxes are going to increase as a result of that. And what we project based on the cost that the development team has submitted is that those taxes are going to increase to just under $10,000 a year. And so to the right of where we are today, you'll see that the developer is still gonna pay the $1,300 a year that they pay right now. But in addition to that, they're gonna pay this teal portion as well. And that portion is an additional $2,300. So with this incentive, the developer is going to pay roughly $3,600 a year. And then what the abatement does, it abates uh, about $8,600 in taxes for the length of the abatement. So you'll see in year 13, the abatement burns off and the developer is going to be responsible for both um, the portion that they were paying before and then the amount that was abated as well. 
So I'm going to move into just explaining um, the project a little bit more. The developer will give uh, more specifics as far as timeline and more about the concept for the project. But the total costs for the development are estimated to be $1.062 million. Um, as Ms. Farley mentioned, they're converting the space into a higher-end restaurant to serve the university district and Bagley neighborhoods. Um, the renovation is going to include new plumbing, electrical, HVAC, and new exterior facade. Uh, there will be two new bathrooms that will be added for the public, and then there will be a new kitchen and a bar build out. Uh, additionally, there will be small office space for managerial staff. So the developer out of this project anticipates that there will be um, four, excuse me, four new construction jobs and 19 full-time jobs uh, based off this project. So today they're only asking for the district. So we're not going to make a recommendation on the term of the abatement. Um, when the development team comes back for the certificate, then at that point, they will make that request. Um, that concludes my presentation. So I'm going to stop sharing. And then the development team is here as well. All right. So uh, Ms. Jackson, just want to say uh, thank you for the way that you presented those financial numbers. It was very clear and concise and straight to the point, but also provided uh, context and not just percentages and ambiguous numbers. So thank you for that. If you can uh, also talk to some of your colleagues, that would be helpful as well, but great job. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to the developer, uh, you have an opportunity to speak. Uh, Mr. Greer, if you can introduce yourself for the record. Hi, I'm Brandon Greer, um, Detroit native. I, I apologize for the troubles. It wouldn't let me on via my laptop, but on my phone, it's working. So a um, little bit of my background, you know, born and raised in Detroit, graduated from UD Jesuit High School, um, and then finished my undergrad at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Um, I became a, a licensed real estate salesperson at the age of 19, um, was kind of born into the business. My grandmother was a broker, and then my mother followed followed her lead so from a child you know we've been buying and rehabbing properties in Detroit and I followed in their footsteps and started at a young age and have been doing so for the past you know 14-15 years um, my partner Epe Udo who is not on here um, today uh, I met him in college my day job is as a sports agent. Um, I found my own sports agency in 2012 um, and now have merged with the larger sports agency called Steinberg Sports Entertainment. And Epe was my first client. He, and, he was a sixth pick in the NBA draft in 2010, played at the University of Michigan for a couple of years, transferred to Baylor, um, and ended up you know, going on to play in the NBA for eight years and uh, has also been playing professionally overseas for the past four years. Mr. Greer, um, before we go forward, I have to do a uh, procedural um, element here where I recess the 1005 public hearing to the call of the chair, call to order the 1025 public hearing and recess it to the call of the chair. We are now back at the 1005 public hearing. The floor remains yours, Mr. Greer. Yeah, so I just want to give some, some of my background um, you know, currently. Mr. Chair, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry to interrupt, but on, on the um, 
On the agenda, the 1025 is a discussion, not a public hearing. Gotcha. Uh, that was my error, um, but we're back. I, I just, okay. I just wanted to call that to your attention, sir. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, but we are back at the 1005 public hearing. Yes. You may proceed. Um, yeah, so just to, to wrap my portion up, um, you know, me and Damien are, are going to spearhead this development. Um, I currently live in the Liver Noise and Seven Mile area and uh, believe that it's something that is needed to continue the re revitalization of our area and add more, you know, dining options locally. All right. Thank you. Ms. Ellis, you uh, have anything you want to add? Yeah, I just introduced myself as, you know, I'm, I'm Damian Ellis, born and raised in Detroit. Uh, I graduated high school with Brandon um, out of UAD High School. Um, I went on to uh, Howard University. And after that, um, I worked in New York on Wall Street for several years. Um, I came back to Detroit in 2010. Um, and I've been in uh, construction, real estate, and finance since um, I was a budget manager um, for the program management company that was hired to manage the Detroit Public Schools $500 million bond. So we built, uh, uh, demolished, and renovated um, 19 schools. So we built uh, eight new schools and we renovated 11 schools in that program. Um, there was also a, a IT budget um, but I mainly focused on the new construction and the renovation projects. Um, and um, I've been doing uh, real estate consulting for about 15 years. And um, I too think that this project is a much needed project on the um, south side of Seven Mile on Liver Noise. Uh, it's in between uh, Seven Mile and um, McNichols, and there's been a lot of attention on um, the north side in between Seven Mile and Eight Mile on Living Noise, but um, I think the development on the south side has come much slower. And so I think this uh, could be a catalyst to some of the other things that some of the other developments that are happening on the, the south side of Seven Mile, um, and we would um, amplify that um, development. And that's all I wanted to add specifically. We're here to answer um, any questions um, related to the project. Uh, and I, do we do we need to talk, Casey, about specifics, or should we just wait to questions? Can you speak a little bit to the community engagement? Uh, yes. So there should be uh, callers who are on the call to. Uh, give their support, but we engaged through the Live Six uh, organization, and um, they've reached out to their network um, through the neighborhood um, organizations. So they, there should be the Live Six director on the call, and also a few residents from the Bagley and Sherwood Forest neighborhoods. Um, but we've engaged uh, for the past few months related to this project um, and, and uh, passed out presentations and 
floor plans and uh, for the most part there's been nothing but support and applause for uh this upcoming development all right thank you uh colleagues any questions concerns regarding this particular project uh I see firsthand member vice chair thank you mr chair and uh good morning to you all uh i, I don't know if we're doing this because this is the district and we're and we're not coming for the certificate but do you have any presentations relative to what this is going to look like to any renderings i don't know if i missed it uh, but just the idea of, of what this is going to look like. I know particularly the area is close to the credit union over there or the old credit union off of Livernois. Uh, but is, are there any renderings or? Uh, we have renderings. Um, my computer actually froze during Casey's presentation. So I, I, I thought they may have been in there, but I, I can pull up renderings um, if I'm allowed to do that. Uh, share my screen if I. You have permission, yes, sir. All right, just give me a second to pull this up. I remember, Vice Chair, while he's pulling it up, if I can just ask the question: How long has that the, the structure been vacant um, that uh, is in question? To anyone on the call? Uh, just as a resident, like. I don't know the exact date, but I would say at least eight, nine years. It'd be, it'd be helpful if we have a little more of a definitive answer if that can be uh, acquired. Um, yeah, we can look into the exact date it was vacant. Um, we do know that the previous use was a liquor store. Um, and we know just growing up over there that it's been vacant for a while, but we can get a specific date um, and send that to you. Thank you. Um, Mr. Chair, in the meantime, if I may ask as well, while they're trying to pull that up, uh, I wanna talk a little bit about just ADA compliance. Uh, for this restaurant, what are the ideas behind that? What does that look like for this project? Um, we we are going to make it uh, ADA accessible for uh, at least one unit. We will build a a ramp for entry, so every every um, tenant will have ADA accessibility to enter the building. But there will be at least one. Or actually, I'm sorry, this isn't, I'm thinking of another another uh, project. But yes, this will have ADA accessibility um, for entrance. So there will be a uh, entrance ramp. You may, uh, I believe you can proceed in, uh, now that we see the, your renderings, just kind of talk about the project. You can also incorporate the ADA um, activity as well as you uh, proceed your comments. Okay. Um, so this is the location. Can you, can you all see my screen pretty clearly? Do I need to blow this up? No, we can see it. Um, so this is the address. Um, just so you can see where it is um, in relation to the street. So it's right north of Margarita. And um, we, this is the existing structure 
but to the south is uh, a parking lot that we own as well that will be um, a part of the development. Um, it's right across the street from Boston Market. Um, this is the satellite view of it, the parcel and then the um, parking lot parcel. This is its current state. Um, in between its um, ownership, the previous owner had development plans where they um, cut out the, um, they cut these bricks out to create, you know, glass entrance, which we're going to use uh, similarly. Um, and this is the parking lot to the south. Um, this is a rendering for how we plan to uh, develop the structure. Um, there, in these renderings, you're not going to see like sidewalks and streetscapes, so it's not really showing um, the ADA entrances, but there will be um, ADA accessibility um, for the entrances. It's just not going to be in these renderings. Um, this is a, another rendering that shows the front facade of the building. This is a floor plan. And you feel free to ask questions as I'm going through this. And this this is it. This is all we have so far. Through, through you, Mr. Chair. So as far, I have a couple more questions. Relative to what we're looking at now, what is going to be the capacity of this restaurant? Brandon, can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, right now, it's going to be uh, 60 people um, on the inside between the bar and the seating. And we also want to add another 40 for um, patio and outside dining for a warmer climate. And is the patio in the uh, obviously be in the back or, or just upstairs on the second floor of the structure? Yes, as well as some seating, you know, in the front. Uh, in the front of Livernois is uh, on the sidewalk area. Yes. Yeah, because they did the the new streetscape over there, which extends the sidewalk, so there there's room for um, seating. Okay, my second question, final question too. Thank you, Mr. Chair, for your indulgence through you. When we talk about parking on that side, I know you showed that lot. What's the the number of cars that can fit in that lot as far as capacity is concerned? Right now, it's at eight. Okay, so, uh, but I'm I'm assuming obviously there's parking along the streets uh, that, yes. that we're that we're looking at relative to uh, for folks who want to frequent uh, this establishment, correct? Yes, example street parking. Will any of those spaces out of the AB uh, handicap? Yes. Okay. Uh, how many? Do we have an idea? Uh, right now, I, I believe the plan was for two. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Any additional questions? Uh, Member Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, 
So Ms. Jackson indicated that you are anticipating, I believe, four construction jobs and 19 full-time jobs. Can no. You, okay, because that sounded like it was in reverse, if anything. Um, but can you speak to what you're estimating and what those jobs look like, what you anticipate them being? So, so the ongoing full-time jobs were four, four full-time and uh, three part-time for actual um, staffing the restaurant. And then we were anticipating, uh, I believe, 19 construction-related jobs. Okay, thank you. And the four full-time and three part-time jobs are anticipated to be chefs, wait staff. Yeah, so so of the four full-time, you'd have a chef, you'd have a um, restaurant manager, and you'd have one bartender and one, one waiter full-time. And then the part-time would be waiting staff that would support um, on a part-time basis. Okay. Um, bartending and, and waiting tables. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Member Johnson. My, my only question is uh, in terms of the uh, construction and, and, uh, and opening, when are you anticipated to start if this all goes through the way you want it to? Uh, when are you anticipating uh, actual construction to begin? And when are you anticipating for uh, it to conclude? So I think Brandon can speak a little bit more to this, but I know for the Oprah district, we can't initiate construction until we have the the district formed and the certificate. So um, we're waiting for the Oprah approval, just because any construction that we do prior to would um, jeopardize our ability to, to attain um, the Oprah abate abatement. And then Brandon can speak to the timeline on um, if everything goes well with this, when we would start and really the um, the timeline. So I think we're shooting to break ground in January. Um, and then Brandon can speak to the actual timeline because he's dealing more with the actual uh, contractors. Yeah, um, you know, in all of my experience with contractors, you know, everything has never gone to plan but we're hoping to be able to start in January and have a, a 12 to 18 month timeline in terms of having the project go from start to finish. So um, ideally, you know, give ourselves some room with speak of like spring of 24. All right. That's all the questions I have at this moment and this phase of the project. I will now open up to public comment if there's anyone from the public who would like to speak on this particular item, this is the 1005 public hearing uh, and the presentation that you just witnessed. Uh, please raise your hand now. If there's anyone from the public who would like to speak on the 1005 public hearing, please raise your hand now. We're going to give everyone one minute during uh, public hearings uh, today. Uh, going once, going twice, going three times. Collection of public comments have now closed for the 10.05 public hearing. Uh, Mr. Singletary, how many callers did we have and who do we have first, sir? Mr. Chair, the one and only hand is Ms. Carol Hughes. All right, Ms. Carol Hughes, thank you for joining us. Uh, you have one minute. The floor is yours regarding the 10.05 public hearing. Ms. Hughes, are you there? 
It's Carol Hughes. You're our only caller, so we can't put you back in the end of the queue. Are you there? All right, going once. I'm going to try it again. Ms. Hughes, are you there? Going twice. Going three times. Ms. Hughes, are you there? Unfortunately, we're going to have to move on. If you would like to provide public comment uh, to this body, please submit it to the clerk, and it will be placed on public record. And this now closes out our uh, public comment for the 1005 public hearing. Colleagues, anything further? Uh, if, if, if not, is there a, a motion on this particular item? Thank you, Mr. Chair. I move that we send uh, line item four to formal with the recommendation to approve. There's a motion to send line item four to formal with the recommendation to approve. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Thank you so much. This now closes out our 1005 public hearing. We'll now like to call back to order the 1015 public hearing. Will the parties who are participating please introduce yourselves for the record? Good morning, Veronica Farley, Housing and Revitalization Department. Casey Jackson, Detroit Economic Growth Corporation. Brandon. Brandon Greer, uh, LGR Projects 2. Uh, Damian Ellis, LGR Projects 2. And so uh, this 1015 public hearing is to establish an obsolete property rehabilitation district on behalf of LGR Pro Projects uh, 2 LLC in the area of 180 East Grand Boulevard, Detroit, Michigan, in accordance with Public Act 146 of 2000. Uh, whoever would like to begin the presentation, you may do so now. Thank you. To the chair, LGR Project 2 LLC is requesting an obsolete property rehabilitation district in the area of 180 East Grand Boulevard in the Island View area of the city of Detroit. The proposed project will rehabilitate a three-story vacant former adult care facility with roughly 9,600 square feet of building space into a 16-unit apartment building. The renovations will include floor reconfiguration, all new mechanical systems, including plumbing, HVAC, and electrical, and exterior brickwork. The legislative body of a qualified local governmental unit may establish a district on its own initiative or upon written request by the owners. The establishment of an obsolete property rehabilitation exemption district is the only the first of two local approvals required for an applicant to receive any tax benefit. In order to receive said tax benefit, this applicant will need to appear before this honorable body again for the certificate. The petitioner and the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation are present to answer any additional questions. Thank you. Who would like to proceed? To the chair, I'd like to share my screen. You may. Okay. Um, the redevelopment of 180 East Grand Boulevard, again, is being led by the same development team. Um, Today, they're here requesting the OPRA. I'm just going to break down um, the current taxes, what we project them to be, and uh, the impact of the incentive itself. So today, um, the taxes on this property are about $7,000, and um, the development team has a $2.3 million budget plan. And so after the development team improves the property, it's going to be reassessed. And once it's reassessed, we're projecting that those taxes are going to increase to about $27,800 a year. And so um, right now, the, the or excuse me, once the 
um, taxes are increased, the developer is going to still pay the $7,000 that they pay today, which is represented in the dark green. Um, but they're also going to be responsible for um, the increase uh, as well. And that's represented by the teal. Um, so in total, um, we're anticipating that the development team is going to be responsible for about $12,600 in taxes through the life of the abatement. And so you'll see in year 13, um, when the abatement wears off, that the development team will be responsible for what those taxes will be uh, fully at that point. To go a little bit into the project, um, this project is located on East Grand Boulevard and off of Lafayette. Uh, Ms. Farley mentioned that it is going to be 16 new residential units or newly renovated residential units that would be brought to market. As I mentioned before, it's a $2.3 million investment um, into the building. 20% of the units are going to be offered at at least 80% AMI. Um, and to give some um, idea what that looks like, a single person earning about $43,000 a year or two people earning um, or two person household earning $50,000 a year um, would be able to secure those units. This building is about 100 years old and it's going to need some essential mechanical and electrical systems replaced. Um, the building will be updated to feature new kitchens, drywalls, bathrooms, fixtures, and also repair uh, the back stairwell. Uh, parking for the tenants is going to be an additional cost of $75 a month, but even with that cost added in, um, it will still, for those affordable units, still be at that 80% or a little bit less. Um, the development team, again, is here requesting just the district today. Uh, they'll be back to pull the certificate at a later date. And at that time, we'll make the recommendation on the length of the abatement. I'm going to let the development team speak just a little bit more to um, the timeline, um, what they're looking to offer. And I'm going to stop sharing my screen. Thank you. Thank you. Uh once again, you know, thanks for giving us this opportunity. Um, this project is one that, you know, we're really passionate about. Uh, one, because of the location, um, you know, it's two blocks over from Belle Isle. Um, it's just, it's been in disrepair and vacant for the last seven years. Um, and we believe it'll really be a gem that's added to our city um when we're done with this project so we appreciate you guys taking the time to um hear us out and you know damien can answer any questions when it comes to specifics with regards to the project uh, yes and i can share my screen again um just to give a little more uh visualization to the project We don't have uh, full renderings yet, but we do have uh, a complete floor plan for each floor. It'll be three floors and a basement. And the, the renderings here reflect each floor. Um, as uh, Casey stated, uh, three of the units will be um, set aside as affordable units, um, at least three. Um, 
And um, there will be one unit uh, that is tailored for ADA accessibility. There will be a entrance ramp for anyone to, to uh, enter that needs ADA accessibility, but there will be a unit that is set up um, with a shower and bathroom that's ADA accessible, et cetera, um, for at least one unit. Um, and then I'll just scroll through the, uh, actually I'll start with the, just the, the scenery so you can see how close to um, the MacArthur Bridge, which is the bridge to Belal. So we're literally, um, it would be within the first block, but there is a small block uh, Commonwealth that kind of breaks this city block in half, but typically this, this would be the first block north of Jefferson. Um, and there's not, again, a whole lot of development going on, but uh, there, this is an Island View neighborhood. So there's a lot of um, investment um, in Island View. This is one of the priority neighborhoods. And um, this, you know, Grand Boulevard block just north of Jefferson um, isn't getting as much development now. And we're hoping that our project will spark um, more investment specifically right as you drive off of the MacArthur Bridge. And we'll go back to um, the floor plans that, you know, if you all have any questions about this specifically, um, you can ask. So this is the basement where you have um, four units. This is the first floor where there are four units. This is the second floor. And this is a very old building. So the, the wood accent and wood trim is, is beautiful, especially the, the stairwell, the center spiral stairwell is, is beautiful. Um, we're gonna preserve as much of that as we can. And this is the third floor and it's four units. And like I said, we don't have full renderings yet, um, but we have the floor plans. And if you all have any questions, feel free to ask. All right, thank you. Uh, colleagues, questions, concerns, comments. Uh, Member Vice Chair. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, and so just a couple things. I, so we're, we're looking at one ADA, uh, just making sure that I, I take this down, one ADA compliant, uh, well, I won't say compliant, but one ADA unit. Uh, that will have showers and all the ADA works, correct? Correct. <clears throat> and give me an idea what parking looks like again. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so we have a, a, a lot that we own that's right next to it. Um, and we plan to make the side light parking as well as... Um, around the back to where it'll be like a parking lot nail shape around the building. So um, the plan is for there to, to be at least one designated parking space per unit. Okay. And is this free parking for the residents or are you going to charge? No, we're going to charge uh, right now. Uh, we have 
budgeted for $75 per unit, which is below the average in that area. Oh, yes, we are going to charge. Uh, and what does parking look like for the, I think you said three affordable units, correct? Is yes. This, is it still $75 or is it lowered or discounted or free? Um, for the discounted units, we were expecting to have the same parking price. Okay. I, I always talk about with these projects, uh, when we talk about affordability, particularly a project like this, this is not necessarily one that's 60% AMI or 40% AMI, but an 80% AMI project. When we talk about affordability and you add parking costs on top of that, sometimes it makes it not affordable uh, anymore. And so uh, we always push back that particularly with these developments that come through here, uh, if there are affordable units there, uh, you know, we I push and urge developers to consider alternatives for parking for those um, affordable units uh, so we can maintain a level of affordability with those units. Uh, so is that something that you guys would look into uh, relative to the, the affordable units? I mean, we're talking about three out of 16. Yeah, absolutely. So we are prepared to lower the cost of parking for those three units by 20% um, at the very least. But um, we would ensure that the all-in price um, would still meet the uh, affordable threshold. But we would be willing, um, if that makes it more palatable for this council, we'd be willing to, to regardless, drop the price um, of parking for the affordable units by 20%. Because we do understand, you know, if, if these particular units are having a different rent, then it would make sense for the parking to be um, less as well so okay now i'm not a mathematician but i know 20 percent uh if we're talking to 75 dollars it's about 15 dollars uh if i'm not mistaken so that's still about 60 dollars a month uh which is still pretty high so particularly for an area where there's a parking lot is not like you're paying another vendor but the parking is actually on your property uh and and when generally when we see projects like this parking most of the time is included in that because it is already a parking lot established as part of the property. And so that's just my point here uh, with this project. And I, I, again, I understand the, the, the cost of parking that exists, uh, but is this something special about this parking to charge $75 a month? Is this gated? Is you have a 24 hour security guard that you have to pay? I'm just curious it, about that. It will be gated. Um, I'm, I gotta put my charger really quick. It will be gated. And, and also, you know, just as a, a property owner with parking nowadays with the, the city of Detroit water runoff fees, you know, the more parking we have, the more costs we incur with the water runoff. Um, yeah, so really the, the, the cost is associated with um, expenses and maintenance, um, but also from our studies, we we didn't see that most um, adjacent buildings or buildings period uh, were not charging for parking, and, and they tended to charge when they were charging. They were charging a lot more than what what we 
uh, our base charge for parking was. Um, but if that if that's not the case, um, we'd be open to considering um, not charging at least the ADA or the um, the affordable units. But from what we've seen, you know, most of the parking or the developments in the area were actually charging for parking. In, in the Island View area? Uh, yes. Okay. And, and again, just remind me, because I know you mentioned water runoff. I, I understand that, you know, incurs a cost, but I mean, no way to estimate that right now, what that's going to be. That's one. Two, uh, if, if we're talking about, just give me an idea, when you say maintenance uh, relative to the parking, are you talking about maintaining the asphalt? or anticipating or, or building the actual parking lot, you know, um, and I know we're, we're pushing back on this, uh, but as again, as these projects come, we want to get an idea of what that looks like for residents or potential tenants who are going to be in that building. So uh, aside from the runoff, the asphalt or gravel or what, you know, whatever we end up choosing, um, that requires maintenance, but also the, the gates are very expensive um, and the maintenance of them are very expensive. The motors on those gates um, tend to malfunction and, and need um, consistent maintenance at a very high cost. Um, you have the remote controls related to them. We don't anticipate being stickers on it, but the, the remote controls um, that open gates, they uh, malfunction or people lose them. Um, so we, you know, we add, and just like I was saying earlier, um, the other buildings in the area tend to charge for parking as well. So we didn't think we were doing something out of the standard, um, but we would, we would consider including parking, parking for the affordable units especially since we're getting this this type of uh, emphasis on it during this meeting. Um, it's, it's something we're going to consider uh, a little more. Okay. And, and my last question, Mr. Chair, uh, through you. Uh, when I look at the building in its current state, um, looks like it has some type of historical feel to it. What does that preservation look like, you know, relative to maybe the columns that exist or the brick and, and all of that? So Brandon can speak to the specifics of it. Um, we we thought this was a, a historic um, building in a historic neighborhood, but Island View actually is not historic. So um, we're going to preserve as as much of it as we can, especially those columns in the in the front of the building. Um, but Brandon can speak to how extensive that will go. If it was historic, there would be guidelines that we'd have to, to meet and that, that could get really, really um, expensive and price us out, but this isn't actually historic, but we're gonna preserve um, as much of the aesthetic as we can. Yeah, our, our plan and one of the reasons we didn't do renderings originally is because our plan is to um, have tuck pointing and restoration of the brickwork done um, along with the columns and keep it as much of the original feel as possible. So we we don't plan to alter and change the exterior much, especially, you know, the brick and the columns. Anything after the brick and column work is done in terms of restoration, 
um, we will just be, you know, painting the trim and, and redoing the, um, the, the concrete as you approach in the stairs. Okay. Um, you know, that, again, I, 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 I didn't think that that was a historical area either or a historical building, but just wanted to get an idea since there are no renderings today, what that's going to look like, you know, when it, when it comes, uh, if you planned it on, if you planned on changing, uh, at least the facade or, or the, the, the front of the building. So, uh, that concludes my questions, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, member Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, not sure if you all have identified um, if you've broken down the units within the, the building. So can you talk about anticipated square footage, the number of bedrooms, the rental rates that you anticipate charging? To the chair or through the chair, excuse me, I have that information pulled up and I'll let um, Damien and Brandon uh, expound further if need be. But um, of the 16 units, um, there are one bedroom units at 480 square feet and then two bedroom units at 640 square feet. Um, for the two bedroom units, the monthly rental rate is $1,300. And then for the one bedroom units, that's at 960. And so you'll have eight um, one bedroom and eight two bedroom units. Thank you, Ms. Jackson. Um, how about the three affordable units? Have we identified if they're one, one bedroom or two bedroom units? So through the chair, um, these rental rates actually all fall uh, under 80%. Okay. As naturally affordable, excuse me. Um, my other question is, and I'm not sure if you've already started this, have you engaged the community at all in this area? I think Damien um, can speak my, to that. My mute was not working. Um, yes, we have. We engaged. Um, it's a community organization slash church um, just north. The building, uh, Genesis Lutheran, and through that church, uh, they've gotten the word out about the project, but we also, in their basement, um, on a Saturday, I believe, we did a full presentation of the project, and um, we, the feedback mainly was about jobs. Um, that was the concern and whether we'd be willing to hire some of the people in the neighborhood. Um, and, you know, I think a, one of the people was a painter. So we let them know that um, we are definitely going to allow um, accessibility as far as uh, applying for jobs or, you know, contracts, whether it be paint or uh, carpentry. Um, we allowed them priority in terms of just vetting them and, and if they're capable of, for confident that they're capable of, of doing the job and doing it right, then we definitely um, be seeking out neighborhood um, contractors. Um, and that, that really was their main um, concern was that would we be willing to hire locally. Okay, thank you. If And I am familiar with Genesis Hope. Um, I would encourage you, if you have not already reached out to Pastor Barry, 
uh, who's just down the street, up the street from the uh, building, he also has a workforce development program where you may be able to identify some residents in the community to provide support on rehabbing the establishment. So I would encourage you to do so. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Member Johnson. Um, this hearing's taking a little longer than anticipated, so I'm just gonna ask just really two quick questions. Uh, one is uh, in terms of the rezoning. I know that it was formerly a uh, adult foster care facility. Uh, have you gone through the process of rezoning it as necessary? It was previously a, an adult foster care. I don't, and maybe Casey can help me on this. I don't think we, I think the actual zone still allows for uh, a residential space. And the documentation that we uh, were provided indicated that that was a uh, previously an adult foster care facility. Yeah, no, it, it was. I don't know if they ever changed the zone in order to operate that. Um, to the chair, I would just um, advise that Brandon and Damien are going to go through um, the uh, PPR process um, in which if it does need to happen, that will come up and um, they'll get instruction on how to do that at that time. Okay. Oh, and, and uh, who's that? I just wanted to, I'm sorry, I just wanted to say that through the chair in the master plan interpretation, um, which is in the supporting documents for this um, public hearing, the planning department stated that the proposed development conforms to the future of general land use characteristics of the area. So I believe that it, it doesn't, yeah, it says that it complies with the zoning. And the other question is in terms of the uh, building itself, the, the structure appears to be vacant. How Do we know how long it's been vacant? Yes, they uh, they still had uh, adult foster care, um, I guess, tenants in there um, when we purchased the building. And that was in like 2017. Um, and you know, they were in there with water coming in through the roof, et cetera. So it, uh, it's been vacant since 2017. All right. And then we actually, in my office, we talked about this issue of having some of these adult foster care uh, facilities being purchased by private owners and the uh, residents not having anywhere to go. Do, do we know what happened to those residents who were there? And I'm not, and again, not casting you as the bad guy or anything like that, but do we know uh, what happened to those residents who were there? Because this is a concern, clearly, uh, that's going to increase as more development takes place. So to Brandon's point, um, a lot of that building was was vacant when we purchased it. So we, we, we it wasn't relocating a lot of people, even though the building is big. And as far as our redevelopment goes, they were only occupying a small portion. So we do know that they were relocated to another um, facility that was much smaller. I don't know off the top of, I don't remember off the top of my head where they went, but we allowed them even after purchase to remain in the building. Um, so I don't even know, we purchased it in 2017, but I don't think they vacated until middle of 2018. They were, we, we allowed them to stay um, and transition um, for, quite some time, but the entire third floor had been vacant and it 
from the look of it, when we first purchased it, it looked like that third floor was vacant for years. Um, and so I think where they were uh, transitioned into was a much better facility and um, could accommodate them um, better as well because it was smaller. So I think the heating was better. Um, there wasn't active leaks coming into the building. Um, so the building was in bad shape, even with them living there. And we do know that they all were um, moved to a different facility under the same management. Um, that was a much better facility um, to accommodate those tenants. So Mr. Ellis, you're saying you are familiar with the facility that they were moved to? I am familiar. I, we actually got a picture. I would have to dig through my emails um, under the lady, the the um, woman who was running it, um, because she she sent us um, where they were relocated to, but it was a while ago. I, I would have to dig through my email. Okay. Yeah, not looking to expose it here, uh, but would be uh, looking to have that information afterwards. Because again, uh, as we get new development, we have heard uh, that that has been a, a challenge, a concern for folks. And whether it's you know 16 units, two units, or one, you know if that's a family member, that person counts. It, Absolutely, they, they matter. So again, not trying to villainize you all, uh, just trying to get ahead of a, a growing problem or a growing challenge that we see. Uh, that is, um, you know, building before us. Uh, thank you for that. We'll now go to public comment. If there's anyone from the public who would like to speak on the 1015 public hearing, please raise your hand now. This is the presentation that you just saw. Uh, if you would like to provide any comments on the 1015 public hearing, again, that's the presentation that we just witnessed. Please raise your hand now. I'm going once, going twice, going three times. Collection of public comments for the 10-15 public hearing is now closed. Mr. Singletary, how many callers do we have and who do we have first? Mr. Chair, we have two callers uh, for this public hearing, first beginning with Mr. Thomas Brown. All right. Uh, Mr. Thomas Brown, before you go forward, just want to let the uh, uh, pre presenters know uh, to keep your ears open for any questions that come your way. You will be expected to uh, respond to them accordingly. All right, caller, the floor is yours. You have one minute. Caller, are you there? You can now press star six if you're on the phone to unmute yourself. John, what was the caller's name again? Mr. Thomas Brown. Mr. Thomas Brown, are you there, Mr. Brown? We'll put Mr. Brown in the end of the queue. We'll go to the second caller. Second caller is Ms. Carol Hughes. Ms. Carol Hughes, thank you for joining us. You have the floor. You have one minute regarding the 1015 public hearing. Ms. Carol Hughes? Uh, yes. Good morning, honorable body and panel. Uh, may I speak? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. It's it's good to see some um, people that look like me who are having development downtown. Um, the questioning was rigorous. I hope that you you know employ that type of rigorous uh, questioning throughout the process of these um, developments. Uh, my question to the gentleman is: It would be nice if they would find out for 
the uh, council exactly where the people who were living there have gone, if you have that information. But that question should be posed to everyone that comes to the table. Um, that's my comment. I'm glad to see uh, my people doing some things downtown. Thank you. Thank you. And Ms. Hughes, you, you probably, I don't know if you hear all of the hearings that we have, but we do ask that question. And, and many times that information is provided uh, in advance of us even having to ask that question. So thank you for, again for your participation today, but I just want to make it clearly known that this is no additional badgering of a potential developer. We uh, are just trying to get to the bottom of questions that we did not have in the presentation. All right, let's go back to uh, Mr. Thomas Jones. Brown. Brown. Oh, missed it up. Mr. Brown, are you there? Thomas Brown, are you there? Going once, going twice. Mr. Thomas Brown, please unmute yourself. Going three times. Unfortunately, Mr. Brown, we're going to have to move on. Uh, in the interest of time, if you do have comments that you would like to provide to this body, please submit your comments to the clerk's office, and they will be placed on public record. All right, colleagues, uh, we've had the presentation, the Q&A, as well as the public comment. Uh, is there a motion on the floor? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. <clears throat> I move that we send line item 5 to formal with a recommendation to approve. There's a motion to send line item 5 to formal with a recommendation to approve. Seeing no objections. That action shall be taken. Thank you so much. All right, Thank this, you. You're very welcome. This now closes out the 1015 public hearing. All right, now to like now like to slide into our 1025 discussion with the land bank with the parties who are participating. Please queue up. The 1025 discussion is with the city council is regarding the city council's uh, quarterly report the first quarter fiscal year 2023 Detroit Land Bank Authority. Will the parties who are participating uh, please introduce yourselves when you see yourselves on the screen. Motion to discuss Mr. Chair. Uh, motion to discuss. Thank you Member Vice Chair. Uh, good morning through the chair Tammy Daniels uh, CEO of the Detroit Land Bank Authority. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning through the chair, uh, Reginald Scott, COO, CFO, Detroit Land Bank Authority. Morning. Next. Um, I can go. Uh, good morning through the chair. Uh, my name is Doug Parker. I'm the general counsel of the land bank. Good morning. Next up. Good through the chair. My name is uh, Rob Lynn. I'm the director of planning at the DLBA. Morning. Good morning through the chair. My name is John O'Hanna and I'm the director of real estate and marketing for the Detroit Land Bank. Good morning. Good morning. Right, director Daniels, I think this is your team uh, that you sent over. Uh, yes. Yeah, if you have anyone else, we can allow them to uh, to speak as, as they arrive, but the floor is yours. Uh, we have just a brief presentation that gives a, uh, an overview of our Q1 report. Um, can we um, have screen sharing privileges for Robbie Lynn. Absolutely. So um, through the chair, we would just like to highlight some of our <coughs> accomplishments and the work that we've been doing um, this 
in Q1 of uh, fiscal year 20, 2023. And so this uh, presentation will be brief, but it gives you uh, uh, the highlights of what's been going on at the land bank. Um, so our accomplishments to get today, uh, <clears throat> since 2014, we have sold <clears throat> more than 16,600 structures across all of our programs. We have sold more than 22,900 side lots. We actively have over 7,200 um, individual buyers in our compliance pipeline who are renovating the, per the homes they purchased from the land bank. Uh, the vast majority of those individuals um, are working to renovate those homes, you know, paycheck to paycheck. They save, they, you know, invest what little money, extra money they have into these homes. And so uh, we have been thoughtful and actively are trying to work with as many as our, of our buyers um, as possible to help them cross the uh, finish line. That includes giving them additional time and encouraging them to actively um, communicate with us about whatever challenges that they have going on. As everyone I'm sure is aware, the land bank's uh, inventory is of blighted homes. And so no one walks into a home that is in pristine condition. It takes a lot of uh, resources and effort and energy to bring these homes into compliance. And so we applaud the people in our pipeline who are actively working to renovate these homes and turn them into a home for their family. Um, since 2014, we have had over 8,000 successful renovations, and um, we have more than 1,100 families who have become owners through our buyback and occupy programs. As I have um, indicated um, in previous presentations, we are fast coming to the end of our um, salvageable structures. We have a little over 2,400 properties in our pipeline that, that are salvageable. Um, as, as you can see from the home sales, our sales have um, slowed because at the during the pandemic, it, there was nothing for us to sell four or 500 properties a month. And we have sold four, almost 500 structures in the first quarter of the year. We only sold 115 in July, 168 in August, 216 in September for a grand total of 499. And that is across all of our sales programs. Um, our our side lot and uh, lot sales, they too have um, tempered a little. Uh, we do see them picking back up though. We sold 400 lots in the first quarter of um, this year with 77 lots being sold in July. 88 lots being sold in August, and then September, 235 lots. I will say that we have placed a great emphasis on trying to draw attention for our Detroit residents to the programs that are available for them to buy lots. Currently, we have um, over 30,000 lots available on our website for sale right now to neighbors, to, to residents of the city who are either um, immediately adjacent to a lot or within 500 feet of a lot. And so um, we are trying to become creative to um, really get the word out to the Detroit residents that there are uh, le there's land available for them to purchase. Uh, we have uh, we launched a postcarding effort for the first time with our neighborhood lots to really uh, drive that point home so that people can go on the website and and access land. Um, our nuisance abatement program. Uh, we have 
we have relaunched this program with great vigor. For a, um, a significant amount of time, there was not a lot of activity happening um, with nuisance abatement. Uh, we did hear uh, the voices of our, our Detroit residents, of our um, community organizations who really want this program um, to, to act as robustly as possible. And as you, as many are aware, but they may not know, the nuisance abatement program seeks to hold private, private property um, owners responsible for the condition of their property. And so in this quarter, we have uh, hired five new staff to support this work. And we have onboarded a, a, a title vendor who is going to help us operate at the scale that we need to, to really address um, the blight in the neighborhoods. As we sell off our property, uh, we, we need the private property owners to address their, their blight and so that the neighborhoods can be as strong as possible. So um, in this last quarter, we posted over 169 vacant and blighted properties. Uh, we filed 176 lawsuits on, on, on properties. We entered into 66 agreements with owners who have stepped up and said, no, I want to take care of my property. I'm going to rehabilitate it, which is always the goal. We don't want to take property. We want them to step up and take responsibility for them. And, uh, you know, we're proud to say that 27 owners have cleared the, um, the, the program and they abated their homes. And so the lawsuit or whatever action we took against them has been um, closed out. And so in the months to come, you will see a consistent increase in the number of properties that we are filing on. And hopefully, the, likewise, the number of properties where property owners step up and say, I want to take care of my property and we can get the neighborhoods in as strong a condition as possible. Um, <clears throat> our customer service. That, um, quite frankly, has been um, a, uh, a, a extreme focus for me. I have heard the complaints of individuals who, you know, call our phones, can't get through, come to the lobby, they can't get help. And so we have put a, we've shined a, a really bright light on that. The goal to avoid the need for individuals to have to come downtown, find parking to interact with the land bank. So we have um, beefed up the team that 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 um, is in charge of this whole function, completely restructured the team and hired new staff to address um, our call volume and our customer service. And to uh, my great um, delight, we have seen significant improvement in <clears throat> in our um, in our in our um, in the work that we put forward, our abandoned call rate has fallen by twenty five percent. So that is the number of people who just could not stand waiting on the phone another minute. They waited for you know an hour and nobody had gotten back to them. So that number has has dropped by twenty five percent. And since the end of Q one, we've shaved an additional two minutes off our wait times. There was a time in the not too um, distant past where people were waiting on the phone for an hour and a half, two hours. Our current average wait time for calls is 6.9 minutes. So we are really proud of the work that we're doing, but we are not complacent and we know that there is more work to be done. And so the staff is always working on um, new initiatives to, to make uh, interaction with the land bank a much more customer-friendly experience. And that includes um, in-depth training for our frontline staff about our programs and how we can 
my goal is to have a person have to interact with the land bank once, not have to call back two or three times to get the answer. And so that is what we're really working for. How do we make that first call, the call that answers all the questions for our, our customers? And so that, that's the effort that we are currently undertaking. <clears throat> as, as you are aware, we have been uh, working on a strategic plan, a five-year plan for the land bank. And so the Center for Community Part, uh, Progress has been our partner um, in this effort. Um, they helped us with our framework, which many of you participated in. And that framework um, is intended to establish the foundation for development of a more ambitious and visionary plan for the land bank. And how do we dispose of the um, more than what 70,000 parcels that we still have in our inventory? We've done a significant um, amount of work in, in selling off almost 50,000 parcels since 2014, but we still have um, a significant amount of work to do. I will note that uh, the Detroit Land Bank Authority is the largest authority doing this type of work anywhere. Our inventory dwarfs all other land banks probably combined. You know, Robbie Lynn is probably the, the expert on those numbers, but what what we are charged with is, is uh, a Herculean task and all the all other land banks across the country are quite frankly in awe of what we've been able to accomplish. Now that is a feather in our cap, but we also recognize that we need to be servicing the city, the residents of the city. And so we we don't, we're not complacent. We recognize that we need to plan for a land bank that is um as accessible to the community and that actually accomplishes the goals of the community. And so the, the framework has helped us to focus our efforts on um, a couple of uh, four four basic um, areas. And what we're going to focus on is communication and customer service, partnerships with our stakeholders, city and community par partners, programming. How do we create programming that speaks to residents' needs? And then how do we shape the organization to deliver those services as efficiently and effectively as possible? And so um, we have been, we have um, uh, created a team here at the land bank who is leading that effort. Uh, we will be undertaking a robust community engagement um, exercise so that we can make sure that the, the policies and programs that we, we put forth actually speak to their needs and desires. Um, and so we are working to solicit philanthropic funding to help us support that effort. And then finally, the last several, um, I want to say months, we've been participating in several vacant policy conferences or co conferences with organizations that service, service some of the same or similar issues that we do. Um, and that has been very informative because it has allowed us to hear about different ways to achieve our goals, the different work that different cities are doing to, you know, to, to work on these same or similar issues. Uh, one really interesting project that has come out of that um, participation is a partnership with the Detroit Land Bank, the State Land Bank, um, the Michigan Municipal League, and MISHTA to launch what is what is they're calling a Detroit pattern book project. And the goal is to lower the barriers to infill development 
by commissioning architectural plans that comply with local ordinance and distributing them publicly so that individuals can, it, well, it, it makes the, the lift for infill housing in a particular area e easier for them. We've, we've done some of the legwork to help them envision a project much more easily in all of the space we have. And put, given that we have about 62,000 vacant lots, we, we wanted to be at the table and participating at this because we'd love to see um, in the infill um, development market, you know, flourish here in the city. And that, um, that effort is expected to roll out by the end of 2023. Robbie Lynn is on the front line of that effort. And if you have any additional questions about that, uh, he would be the person who can um, speak most intelligently about it. And that is um, a super high level of what's been going on at the land bank. Um, I will also note that um, we have um, been reaching out to your, to the respective council members' offices to set up a, a quarterly meetings with each of your um, colleagues and the staff just to talk about what's going on at the land bank, what issues are your constituents having? Are there any community meetings that you'd like us to attend? And so we're hoping that we will continue that on a quarterly basis so that we can have a, a regular dialogue and you can be more informed on a real-time basis about what's going on and 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 we want to be able to help you solve your constituents' issues much quicker. So, with that, I have um, nothing further. But we will ex we entertain any questions that you have about anything I presented or anything that you'd like to know about what's going on at the land bank. Thank you so much, ma'am. All right, colleagues, any questions, concerns, comments regarding today's report from the land bank? Uh, I have a few. Uh, I have a few of them. Uh, just I, I, I'm looking back at a report that was provided, uh, PowerPoint to this body back in March of this year. We talked about, and you kind of mentioned it, that there was a number of folks who did not have the ability to, uh, you know, you were working with folks to have, uh, provide them with resources to allow them to complete their projects. And I know we've had the, the finish line grant. We didn't talk much about that uh, in mm -hmm. this presentation here today. Talk to us a bit about the finish line grant uh, that are being provided uh, to, for low-income uh, DLBA buyers in the rehab process. Thank you so much to the chair. So um, we, as I said, have sold over 8,000. Um, no, we have, we have, we've sold over 16,000, almost 17,000 structures. And we have currently about 7,200 um, individuals in our pipeline who are rehabbing that house. And they're trying to do that in most cases, the vast majority of our people are, are, you know, they don't have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of resources, and they are financing it either, you know, with their own sweat and effort, or they're doing it paycheck to paycheck. Uh, several years ago, we received um, a grant from Fifth Third that allowed us to help a few people in our pipeline who's they had done everything else that we'd asked them, but they could not afford that one big ticket item that would get them over the finish line, which is how the name finish line came. And so what we have done is created a pilot program where if you've done everything else and you don't have the, the five, six, seven thousand dollars for a furnace, you don't have the um, you can't put the bathroom in or you need a hot water tank or you need the kitchen appliances, we would. Um, grants with that money that we've gotten from the bank, we would grant that money to the 
the, the buyer to help them complete their project and move into the house. I will highlight that it is, is the last item that you need to take to um, finish in order to move into the house. Um, and we also require BCED to inspect the, if, if it's like the hot water tank or the furnace, it requires BCED approval in order for us to sign off on, on the, um, the, uh, the appliance. So we've been able to help, I think, 16 families with that, that we had $100,000. We've been able to help 16 families. We are, you know, we've been, we, we've been talking with um, the administration and with council members about that program to see if we can get additional funding to help these individuals who have invested. They have, you know, they've done their part. They've, you know, they've invested in the home. They've done everything that they, that we've asked them to do. And they just need a little bit more help to get them over the finish line. So we have, um, <clears throat> the vast majority of our buyers are low, lower income individuals and they're Detroit residents. And so this is in my mind, the, a, a phenomenal way for us to address housing shortage, affordable housing, um, and just to give these families a boost up. They can now move into this house and create a home for their families. So that's the finish line program. And um, if you have any questions about it, we welcome any, yep, so, any questions. Thank you. I know you say there's, there's 16 that you've been able to assist and that's with $100,000. Is that $100,000 been expended with those 16 or is there any additional funding available? I think we have quite frankly about a little over $7,000 left and we're, that's the last of the money. And we're trying to, you know, we, we have literally probably 50 families who are right at the finish line and are all raising their hand for that last, um, that last bit of money. So yeah, so our I, funds have run out. So how, how do, I mean, again, to, to your, your point, there's a lot of folks who, who need that uh, last mm -hmm. bit of assistance. How were those 16 selected? So <clears throat> very early on, so we have not, of course, publicized it very widely because we did not have the resources to help everyone. And so it was really, so we have a, a team of compliance reps who monitor um, each individual rehab process. So we have our compliance reps would nominate people who were at the finish line, who had done all but this one last thing, and they would nominate them. And then you'd have to, they'd be vetted. You have to be low income. This had to be your primary residence. You could not have another house in the city. This can't be rental income. Um, and the one thing that they needed would either have to have been a furnace, a water tank, bathroom fixtures, or kitchen fixtures. And so that was the vetting process. And we it took us a minute to go through the money, but we now know that we probably have about 1,400 families right now who are one repair away from a, from achieving compliance. And a lot of times those repairs are that one big ticket item that they have to save up for in order to move into the house and achieve compliance. My other question is, well, let me just go back. So the, the funder that provided the, the uh, finish line grant uh, the mm -hmm. first time around, have you gone back? To, I mean, I know you mentioned to the administration and you said you talked to some council members as well. Have you gone mm -hmm. back to the, the, the grantor and expressed, you know, the one, the need, but also showed them what their funding has actually uh, resulted in, which potentially would make them want to give more? So we have a team of individuals on our compliance team whose job it is is to seek out 
grant funds and dollars for um for our families. And so that that is what our team has done. We have yes gone back. Um, initially, I think the the um, apprehension apprehension around giving us more money was that there were so many other organizations raising their hands and vying for money that they wanted to spread the the wealth and love around to the community. So, um, but we absolutely we've not stopped there. We continue to um, submit for any and all grant monies that we can find to support this effort. Okay. And then, uh, my last question before I open up uh, again to colleagues, and in, in that same document, you mentioned about infield housing, a, a pilot for attainable workforce housing. Talk to us a bit about that, please. Director Daniels, I don't know if you heard me. Can you hear me? Did we get muted? Ah, we got muted. Let's see if can we unmute. I'm trying. Unmute. All right. Well, we're going to recess to the call of the chair uh, to work out this. Through uh, the chair, I believe you've been muted somehow. Because if there's a question, we're not hearing it. Yeah. Yep, yep. So we recess to the call of the chair. It happened after that Thomas Brown guy came back. Through the chair, apparently the council has been muted. Can you guys hear me now? One, two, one, two, one, two. Can you hear me? No, they can't still can't hear us. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. And we are <laughs> back. All right. So we'd like to now call back to order the Planning and Economic Development Standing Committee for today. Madam Clerk, can you please call the roll. Chair sure. Council President Pro Tem James Tate. Here. Council Member Fred Durhall III. Present. Council Member Letitia Johnson. Present. You have a quorum present, Pro Tem. Thank you. We have a quorum. We're back in session. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened with the little snafu here, but the question I was asking was regarding the that same document that was sent to us back uh, earlier this year. It was regarding this uh, infield housing pilot that was mentioned for attainable workforce housing. Talk to us a little bit about where that stands. Through the chair, Robbie, Robbie, are you familiar with? Yes, yeah, so through the chair, I believe he's referring to our Mishnamod grant. Oh. Um, and uh, uh, Tammy, I, I actually would- um, Defer to me. You actually might know uh, more about the details of where that- so so um, through the chair, yes, we applied for and received a $200,000 grant from MISHTA um, to build um, a home on a, on a couple of lots that the land bank owns. We are in the middle of the RFP and RFQ process. We've gotten bids back to do the work 
and we're actually scoring those. It's it's become a little bit more complicated um, than we initially thought because of inflation and supply issues. The cost of building the house came in a little higher than expected. So we're trying to work with Mishta and our potential contractor on how we can still get it done at the right number. All right, now it's coming back to me now. All <laughs> yeah. right, colleagues, uh, any additional questions? Member Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, so I have a, a question that's kind of more specific to District 4, but I want to try to generalize it. I know previously it was indicated that there were over 1,700 lots that were available in District 4. Um, I believe that's currently for sale and maybe greater than that. Uh, but I'm, I'm also trying to understand um, that through my office, we've, we have several constituents who've reached out um, with an interest in acquiring lots. So I'm trying to understand where the disconnect is to be able to help expedite uh, getting those lots off of the Detroit Land Bank authorities um, out of your inventory and working with our residents for them to be able to do the projects that they are looking to do. Is there anything in general that you all can think of that may be hindering um, the process? And, and that's why we have so many lots in District 4 that are available. I know we had more demolitions in District 4, but just want to make sure we're able to provide some support in expediting getting those out of your inventory. So through the chair, I'll defer to Robbie and Jono on this. Yes, uh, through the chair, uh, that's really a wonderful question. And I, I would say that, you know, in general, uh, most of our lots are listed for sale at any given time. And we are, you know, constantly working to increase the number of lots available for sale. Um, however, you know, there are really, you know, 14 different criteria we look to um, uh, assess whether a property is able to be listed. And that ranges from everything from zoning, size, demolition liens, back tax issues, uh, its location in an active city hold area, um, and everything else. And, and we're, you know, actively working to get the number of listed lots um, increased. I've seen a, 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 a dramatic increase in the number of calls uh, uh, looking for uh, uh, folks to buy uh, vacant lots. And we have been you know, listing a lot of lots in response to, to those calls because we're oftentimes able to, make a, you know, one-off resolution to those issues. Um, and so, you know, this past, uh, um, you know, month, for example, we received 800 calls uh, uh, to um, uh, list vacant lots and we're, you know, have listed uh, lots in response to more than a quarter of those calls. Um, but I feel like to me, the answer really lies in trying to address these issues proactively and in bulk so that we're not just uh, responding to one-off calls, but we're, um, you know, trying to make ever more of our lots available. This year, we set a goal of trying to resolve the issues with 10,000 lots. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, listed more than 8,100 so far this year and uh, expect to have finished uh our goal uh, well before the end of the uh, fiscal year. Uh, thank you for that uh, through the chair. I'm wondering, I know pre-pandemic, you all would come out in the community and sell side lots. Are you still doing that or are you looking to uh, revisit doing that? 
So through the chair, yes, Councilmember Johnson, um, we had, of course, ceased um, that because of the pandemic, um, but we have begun to um, increase our engagement in the community. And we should, um, we, I think maybe in the spring, we could entertain by that point, I feel like we'll be at a place where we could seriously entertain the feasibility of doing a silo fair because those fairs um, brought hundreds of people out at one time. And, you know, I, while I'm, I feel like we're, we're going in the right direction, I feel like we need to wait a little bit longer before we um, we do another silo fair, but I, I, that is coming because that is a great way for the us to go out in the community and on one in one day sell a significant number of lots. Okay, thank you. Uh, mm -hmm. And my last question is in regards to the new abatement program. I know when we all met, um, there was an individual in District 4 who had been rehabbing houses and uh, several of his properties that he has yet to rehabilitate have been tagged. Can you just talk about the general process um, with the nuisance abatement program and your flexibility on working with individuals um, who have shown that they have the um, capability, the financial resources to be able to rehabilitate the properties, but maybe not in the the time frame that you are expecting to have it done. Can you talk about how you are working with individuals in our communities? Absolutely, through the chair, I'll defer to Doug, um, but I will say this just generally, our goal is not to take people's property, but we view ourselves um, as advocates of the neighbors. So. Um, we, we're trying to advocate on behalf of the neighbors and the, the, the people who are living next to that blighted structure. So we do work with people, but um, again, our, our focus is on the existing neighbors who take care of their property and who do what they're supposed to do. But then I'll defer to Doug for the details. Yes, thank you, Tammy. Uh, through the chair, Council Member Johnson, in response to your, your question, I think the specific individual you mentioned is actually a good illustration of, of our process. And I believe if we're talking about the same person, uh, there's a telephone call scheduled for today uh, with a couple of representatives from our NAP team and, and that person. Uh, but yeah, speaking more generally, um, as Tammy says, we're not looking to take properties. We prefer to enter into an agreement with someone and, and have them commit to, to removing the blight, abating the blight and renovating the property or, or even demolishing the property if, if that's the better course. Um, so in terms of our flexibility, the, our standard template agreement does ask them to renovate, to alleviate the blight at least within six months which is similar, exactly the same actually, is what we have in our auction uh, sales. But certainly we will sit down and talk about what's realistic. Sometimes people have more than one property, maybe there's several. And obviously, you know, maybe they're unable to get to all of these several properties at one time. And we'll work with them on either developing a schedule or, or giving some more time. And, and finally, I'll just add, uh, if, if they stick to the six month schedule, if six months goes by and they're not done yet and there's some good reasons and they're making good progress, we'll also work with them to give them a little more time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Any further questions, colleagues? 
All right, seeing none. Uh, colleagues, is there a motion to receive? Uh, oh, that was a discussion. We will now close out our ten twenty-five discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. We'll now go into unfinished business, line item 7.1 uh, and 7.2, colleagues. If we can take those together, please. Motion to discuss. So moved. Thank you. This is regarding the uh, long-awaited uh, report and discussion regarding the uh, potential change or the request to change the state law uh, to exclude Detroit Public Schools and Detroit Pub Public Library from tax abatements and tax captures. Uh, we did receive the report last week but it was uh, woefully hey, um, just very I challenged didn't have a lot of information i'm hearing uh if we can mute miss hughes please thank you it was um uh it didn't have a lot of information in it that we were, were seeking that would help us to determine if it uh, was proper made sense for us to submit a uh, resolution um so I'm going to ask colleagues if we can bring back both line items uh, 7.1 as well as 7.2 back in January. To, uh, we do have a discussion that we're looking to have uh, on that particular day, January 12th, uh, to bring this, this item uh, to flush it out more so than where it is today. Uh, feels like a slow walk to uh, nowhere, um, and I don't like slow walks to nowhere. I like to know where we're going, and hopefully in that discussion, January 12th, we have a better understanding. Is there a motion, colleagues, for line item 7.1 and 7.2 or further discussion? I move to bring those items back. Uh, I think that's our first uh, meeting in January, Mr. Chair. Yes, sir. Thank you. There's a motion to bring back line item 7.1 and 7.2 uh, on January 12th. Seeing no objections, those actions shall be taken. Line item 7.3, status of Council President Mary Sheffield submitting memorandum relative to Brewster Wheeler Recreation Center update. Uh, we did have an opportunity to speak with Council President's office, and they had additional questions that they would like to get responded to. So, colleagues, is there a motion to bring back line item 7.3 in two weeks? So moved. Seeing no objections, so we shall bring back line item 7.3 in two weeks. Line item 7.4. That action shall be taken, excuse me. Line item 7.4, status of council member Angela Whitfield Calloway, submitting memorandum relative to property inventory. Uh, colleagues, we did have an opportunity to speak to Mr. Head. This item was uh, referred to LPD. We did talk to speak with Mr. Head, and he is uh, kindly requesting a two-week bring back to complete the responses in that memo. Is there a motion for a uh, two-week bring back in line item 7.4, colleagues? So moved. There's a motion to bring back line item 7.4 in two weeks. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Line item 7.5, status of Council President Mary Sheffield submitting memorandum relative to community lot endorsement. We had an opportunity to speak with the administration as well as Council President's office, and uh, there's a request for a bring back uh, for January 12th to allow additional uh, uh, memos to be generated. Is there a motion to bring back line item 7.5 uh, on January 12th, 2023? So moved. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Thank you. Line item 7.6, status of council member Scott Benson submitting memorandum relative to fire station conditions, uh, historic designation. Uh, colleagues, we did have an opportunity to speak with uh, member Benson's office, and there's a request to receive and file this this item is there a motion unless uh, there's a discussion uh, move to 
No, no discussion. Move to uh, receive and file. There's a motion to receive. Before I call that, I'm getting flagged by my team. Uh, Mr. Chair, that uh, HDAB, Mr. Shoemaker, and Ms. Ms. Moss uh, were also prepared for a short presentation today, if you so wish. Okay. Colleagues, would, would you like a uh, presentation on this item? Uh, I withdraw my motion. I move for a short discussion. Oh, that is a short discussion that is being called for. Uh, Mr. Shoemaker, as well as Ms. Moss, if you can join us on the screen. Now is your right. time. Appreciate the, uh, your, your presence here and your availability. Um, the floor is yours. Thank you, uh, Ryan Shoemaker, HDAB. Um, I'm just going to give a brief introduction, and Kelsey Moss, our preservation planner, is going to give a brief overview of the work Mr. that we did. Mr. Shoemaker, oh, yeah. Mr. Shoemaker, I'm sorry. Motion to discuss, please. <laughs> so moved. Thank you. Uh, sorry about that. Thank you. No problem. Uh, Mr. Shoemaker, floor remains yours. Thank you uh, to the chair and to your honorable body. Um, the, the task before us that was directed by uh, council member Scott Benson was to do um, an overall uh, brief analysis of the current historic designation for the fire stations that are currently in, in operation or in the uh, ownership of the city. Um, so Ms. Moss is going to provide that overview. Um, you should also have received a, a report um, with those findings, but she's gonna provide a brief overview of, of those findings. Good morning and thank you. Through the chair, I'll share my screen to give a very brief overview. All right. Okay, can you see the screen? Yes, we can. Great, thank you. Um, so as my colleague, Mr. Schumacher mentioned, this is in response to Council Member Benson's um, memorandum. So briefly, um, our office, the Historic Designation Advisory Board, analyzed all the existing public structures um, that are active or either decommissioned or um, undergoing renovation. There were 41 uh, stations reviewed. Two of those have been decommissioned, which are noted in black, and one is currently undergoing, or excuse me, uh, noted in yellow. And there's one undergoing current renovations to be reactivated as a fire station. And there are 39 active stations as of right now. From the preservation uh, values, which is our area of expertise, um, there's a range that was found. The buildings range in built date from 1898 to 2004. Um, so over hundred years of architectural history. Um, we have 37 of those that are considered historic. And as a reminder, to be considered historic, that is 50 years of age or more. And uh, 19 of those are hundred years or older. Um, we have uh, excuse me, five stations that are currently listed in the National um, Register of Historic Places, and three of those fives are three of those five. Excuse me, are also within local historic districts. There are three additional ones that are adjacent to current or understudy local historic districts. And of the stations um, that have no designation, there are 32 that would be eligible for historic designation. Um, this was determined by our own office or our um, sister offices, the Michigan State Historic Preservation Office and the National Trust of Historic Places. And there are five that are ineligible for historic designation. 
And this is either due to their age, um, which means they're too young. They're 50 year, under 50 years of age, which does mean when they hit the 50 year mark, they may be eligible for historic designation. And uh, there was one of those fives that has had too much alteration to be considered historic. So that is quick. Um, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer um, or my colleague as well. All right, thank you so much for that. Colleagues, any questions, concerns, comments? Seeing none, that's a great presentation. Great job, thank you. Um, colleagues, is there a motion for line item 7.6? Move to receive and file line item 7.6. Thank you, there's a motion to receive and file line item 7.6. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Line item 8.1, on to new business, submitting resolution authorization for contract number 6004573, 100% grant funding. Uh, this is for to provide workforce and development, a career coaching in the greater Cork town. Uh, contract goes through May 25th of 2017, excuse me, 2027. Colleagues, is there a motion to discuss and or approve? Uh, move to send line item 8.1 to formal with the recommendation to approve. There's a motion to send line item 8.1 to formal with the recommendation to approve. Seeing no objections, then action shall be taken. Line item 8.2, submitting resolution authorization for contract number 6004781, 100% ARPA funding to provide tenant uh, relocation services to support residents in multifamily affordable housing developments around transitions in their housing status. Uh, the contractor is United Community Housing Coalition. Contract goes through December 31st of 2024. Colleagues, is there a motion to discuss and or approve? Thank you, Mr. Chair. I've had the opportunity uh, to look over this contract. Obviously, it's something we've seen. I move that we send line item 8.2 to formal with the recommendation to approve. There's a motion to send line item 8.2 to formal with the recommendation to approve. Seeing no objections, then action shall be taken. Line item 8.3, so submitting, actually, colleagues, if we can take line items 8.3 through 8.6 together, these are four contracts uh, concerning the Bridging Neighborhoods Program. Is there a motion to discuss and or approve line items 8.3 through 8.6? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Unless you have further discussion, uh, we're pretty familiar with a lot of the Bridging uh, um, Neighborhoods Programs. Uh, we get frequent emails relative to uh, these contracts, so I'd like them to make a motion to send a formal with the recommendation to approve 8.32 through 8.6, I believe. Thank you. There's a motion to, and just for everyone, these are for time only, no, no uh, dollar amount. Uh, there's a motion to uh, approve line item 8.3, line items 8.3 through 8.6, and send discussion. a formal with a recommendation to approve with discussion. Member Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I actually have a question for OCP in regards to 8.4, or maybe Director Rizzo can answer the question. So mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if the work has actually started um, for this particular contractor. Um, I do understand that it is to provide an extension of time only, but just curious to know if the work has already been started um, or why the request is for an extension of time. Thank you so much, Member Johnson. Uh, Mr. Rosso, if you can introduce yourself for the record and you may proceed with your response. Through the chair, uh, Rico Rosso, Director of Bridging Neighborhoods. 
Uh, to answer your question, Councilmember Johnson, um, the work has started both on the Ford Home Repair and the FCA Home Repair programs. Um, these contracts end at the end of the year, and we know just based on estimates for houses that we still need to complete, um, we are going to be right up against that clock of end of the year going into early 2023. So uh, to be sure that we don't come back for another time extension, we, we wanted to add a few more months uh, to the contracts. And um, as of today, on the FCA side, we have, uh, we're a third of the way done with all of the houses in that program and a third of the way done, uh, or I'm sorry, close to halfway done on the Ford side. So we're hoping to wrap all of the home repair uh, on the Ford side uh, by the end of this year. And we know on the FCA side, since we have uh, 10 more home repairs on, on the um, FCA side, it's going to go into um, the first month, uh, potentially middle of February of next year. Thank you for that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, there's a motion to approve line item 8.3 through uh, line items, excuse me, 8.3 through 8.6. Uh, any objections? And, uh, line, there's a motion to send to formal with a recommendation to approve line items 8.3 through 8.6. Seeing no objections, those actions shall be taken. Thank you. Line item 8.7, submitting report and proposed ordinance to amend Chapter 22 of the 2019 Detroit City Code Housing Article 3, Inclusionary Housing Requirements. Is there a motion to discuss, colleagues? So moved. Thank you. We'll... Uh, attorney from the law department, please queue up. I believe that's Attorney Saxby. Uh, please introduce yourself for the record and let the public know what this particular uh, ordinance, uh, proposed ordinance, uh, is aiming to do. Good afternoon, through the chair, Attorney Saxby from the law department. Uh, Councilmember Waters requested that the law department prepare an ordinance to provide for greater transparency in inclusionary housing contracts issued by the city of Detroit. This proposed ordinance was drafted with the intent to achieve two goals identified by Councilmember Waters. The first being to provide city council with additional information that Member Waters believes is necessary to make informed decision on special developer contracts. The second goal is to provide Detroit residents with information about some of the tools that the city may use to regulate and enforce compliance with inclusionary housing agreements. That's it? That is it, yes, Chair. All right, thank you, colleagues. Any additional questions, concerns uh, regarding this particular item? All right. Uh, colleagues, is there a motion to uh, receive and file the report? And, Pierre, we'll start there. I, I make a motion, uh, Mr. Chair, to receive and file the report and then send line item 8.7. Oh. Or to receive and file the report, pardon me. There's a motion to receive and file the report in uh, 8.7, seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Member Vice Chair. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I also move that we send line item 8.7 uh, to formal for the introduction and the setting of a public hearing. Thank you. There's a motion to send line item 8.7 to formal uh, to uh, introduce and set a public hearing. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Thank you. Uh, and that takes us to the end of our agenda. Mr. Chair. Um, Ms., uh, Madam Clerk. Yes. Um, is a public um, date for the public hearing set yet at no, this moment? No, ma'am, but it, it will be. Thank you. Thank you. 
All right, member reports. Member Vice Chair, floor is yours, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I uh, have a very brief report just to remind the residents of District 7 this Saturday from 9.30 to 3 p.m. we are having our inaugural uh, community leaders conference uh, and at this conference we're encouraging all of our community leaders heads of the organizations as well as associations to come through we'll have numerous presenters talking about how to strengthen your community organization how to establish a 501c3 a nonprofit organization uh, how to apply for grants uh, as well as other just vital information and so I'm urging everyone to come out from 9:30 to 3 p.m. Uh, this will take place at the Brennan Pools site in that area uh, and uh, we will be providing breakfast as well as lunch uh, so that's from 9 30 to 3 p.m. thank you mr. chair thank you uh, member Johnson thank you mr. chair no report thank you and just want to let everyone know that we've had and I guess it's certainly no surprise a very challenging year when it as it relates to uh, gunfire especially at children those under the age of 16 uh, just this year alone, this is as of October, we had 16 uh, minors in the city of Detroit who were uh, killed by gunfire. Not, not just shot, killed. Uh, 58 have been actually shot uh, this year alone. Uh, so this Saturday, we will be hosting as a part of our D1 CAN, D1 uh, CAN um, Gun Violence Prevention Initiative, D1 CAN standing for District 1 Community Accountability Network. Uh, we will be having a gun response, a gun owner workshop, gun ownership workshop entitled Your Right, Your Responsibility. We're not telling folks and trying to get uh, pry your guns away from your hand. This is your right as a U.S. citizen. Uh, but it is your responsibility if you have a gun not to allow those firearms to be haphazardly placed in your home um, or on your person or in your vehicle. Uh, we've seen far too many young people uh, either steal those firearms uh, when they're misplaced or placed in, in, in areas uh, uh, carelessly or, uh, even more tragically, harmed um, by the uh, uh, firearm. Uh, so on this Saturday, November 5th, between the hours of 1.30 p.m. and 3.30 p.m., we will be hosting a gun ownership workshop where we will have our partners from uh, Black Bottom Gun Club will be providing information on how to properly secure and store your firearm. It seems very simple, but if it was so simple and easy, we wouldn't have the amount of young people who are dying and being shot on a regular basis here in the city of Detroit. Those numbers that I just quoted were just for this year. Um, this is an annual uh, challenge and discourage that we have to uh, overcome. Uh, hopefully we will begin that process very soon, and we're going to do our part uh, ND1 as a representative of this Detroit City Council uh, this upcoming Saturday again, um, 1.30 p.m. at Crowell Recreation Center. Uh, we'll also be joined by Chief White. He'll be there as well, DPD uh, Chief of Police. Uh, additionally, uh, someone who unfortunately knows this um, type of trauma all too well, the uh, mother of um, Kanaya Bryant. 13-year-old who was shot with a stolen gun. Uh, she will also be joining us as well. Uh, a lot of information that will be provided. Uh, we know we sometimes got to lure people in because, again, if this was so easy to do, we, folks would be doing it all around. For those first 50 participants who are going to join us, uh, there will be 30-minute uh, gun range vouchers that are being provided. So we're not talking about food and things of that nature. We're talking about something 
that can be utilized for that firearm that you already have in your home. It's one thing to have it. It's another thing to know how to use it and store it safely. So again, final, final, uh, November 5th, this upcoming Saturday, between the hours of 1.30 p.m. and 3.30 p.m. at Crowell Recreation Center in D1, located at 16630 Lasser Road. Gun ownership workshop. It's your right, but it's also your responsibility as a gun owner. Thank you so much. And if there's no further, colleagues, is there a motion to adjourn? So moved, Mr. Chair. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Thank you so much for your participation and your patience. You all be safe, be well. Take care. This meeting is adjourned.